Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutner. Welcome, everyone, to this month's episode of Revolution. Thank you for listening. To begin the show, I am once again joined for our roundtable by my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald, John Carousella, and Deb Carousella. And as usual, we have a provocative topic to discuss and hopefully to cause you who are listening to spin your wheels and, and think about what it is you might feel or have thoughts about regarding this topic. Uh, Of course, if you have any comments or anything you'd like to add to our discussion, you're always welcome to jump over to Facebook at facebook.com slash fireflywillows or facebook.com slash revolutionwithhighc and offer your input, join the conversation. We're always happy to hear what people think about what it is we have to discuss. So our topic today is going to look at the idea and perhaps the differences between the concepts of helping, fixing, and serving. And is there a difference? Are there similarities? Do they work together? Are we doing one versus the other at any given moment? Or can we be doing more than one at the same time? So the first thing that I would like to put out and pose to my co-hosts is when you hear those terms, how would you perhaps define helping, fixing, and service or serving? Well, um, I see, I think that this is a, it's a good question and it's something that people should probably be aware of because there is, a, I think, a subtle difference between helping, fixing, and serving. And I think um, the difference is from where it's coming from within yourself. And also, not only is it where does it come from within yourself, but how is it received by the other party, um, I think, can have a lot to do with what's going on as well. And, of course, we don't have any control over how it is being received, um, all we can do is consider where it's coming from from within ourselves. And there are moments, I think, when we've taken action or we, we enter into um, something with the point of view of fixing it and um, solving an, a problem for someone. And sometimes we do that because we truly believe that we have the answer and our way is the way. Sometimes we do do it out of a sense of concern and true selfless motivation for the other. And I think if, as long as a person is cognizant of where it's coming from and why it's coming for them, um, then you can, make your diff- you can make your choice. You can make your decision as to how what you're putting out there may be received and what you're putting out there, how it can do the best good. 
Yeah, I like that, Deb. And for me, and hi C and for John, when I look at the service part, it vibrates to me as a sense of being, as if there's an umbrella. And under that umbrella, I would put things like helping and fixing and assisting or aiding different sub-vibrations there. And the overall theme of being of service, when I look at that, would be a sense of non-attachment or having no agenda or exercising discernment and knowing when to disengage. So I really like the helping and the fixing in the same category as aiding, um, doing. They're all doers for me, but need to be done from the being state of being of service. And I think something you said, said there also um, the way I tend to think of it, too, helping and fixing tend to be more action-oriented, whereas service tends to be more presence-oriented. Yeah. And helping and fixing are about doing something towards a particular end, uh, towards a particular goal. Service can be simply being present with. And so you can sit with someone who needs to vent or who needs to cry and be in service to them without necessarily fixing the problem for them, because that may not be your place, which I think is your uh, idea of disengagement. Uh, and so to me, I would think of that separation there with helping and fixing being more action-oriented and service being more presence-oriented. And to, and to me, Kai C. Also, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but for the the being of service, to me, it also, if I may add one more thing to it, it also implies a sense of discipline or rigor to be in that being state, because you can get really wrapped up in the doing part and lose your being state of being present, because because doing is very seductive. We have very much so, very much so. I agree. Mildred Lynn's comment um, resonates with me. It's taken me a really long time to move from fixing to helping to service. And, and, uh, you know, because because fixing always presumed that I knew what was broken uh, and that I knew how to fix it. And that's a, there's a huge amount of ego, was a huge amount of ego in that for me, at least. And helping made me feel, you know, it was about me. It was, it was about me feeling like I was rescuing something. And again, a, a big uh, attachment to what my, what my role was and, and how that made me feel and what, was, what I was trying to satisfy within myself. And over time, as I've been walking down on the spiritual path more and more, it really does feel quite different to, as I like to say, serve without ego. You know, you bring your gifts out into the world, you make yourself available to, to serve in whatever way your gifts are, you know, predispose you to serve. And if if no one takes you up on that or if the person or the persons that you offer your service to don't take you up on it, that should be okay, right? There should be no attachment to that. And I, that's one of the things I try to practice is not being attached to someone rejecting my offer of service. 
And if it's service, it really is much easier to do than if I'm offering to help someone and they spurn it or if I'm, I'm trying to fix something and it's rejected. So it, all in all, choosing to put yourself in the frame of service, presence and willingness to, to be available to serve takes a ton of pressure off and allows me to participate with greater freedom and greater joy fundamentally. And I think that's because fixing and helping tend to be more quantifiable. And so we tend to look at it as, did I do it right or did it work? Whereas service is a bit less quantifiable in that specific sense. And we can say that we were of service regardless of how something turned out because if we're in service, we may have been there and offered support or been there and done what we could in that time. And regardless of how it ended up, we don't have to look at what we did as somehow right or wrong in terms of the service that we provided because we weren't trying to fix or help. We were simply being there. And to me, that speaks to that freedom you're talking about. It gives ourselves that freedom and permission to offer what we have, but not be attached to necessarily some sort of right, wrong, or quantifiable outcome versus simply being there and offering what we have. So the impetus for this was from a talk at the uh, or in the Noetic Sciences Review by Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen. And there's a couple of things that she said that I just wanted to see how you feel about her particular perspective on helping fixing and service. You know, one of the things she says, which I think will echo something that you said, John, is that when you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. But when you are in service, you see life as a whole. So how do you feel? feel when you hear that? Do you think that there is a kind of a tendency towards seeing things as weak or broken when we're going into fix it or helping mode versus service seeing things more holistically? For me, when you read about fixing and helping and being in service, I look at them all as positive life force energy. So I believe that the person that had written that article or provided that blog posting had a different take on it, and when I read through it, it really didn't resonate with me because my perception and my experience is different. So that's what I wanted to offer. Uh, I would say that um, the that it's you know I I do resonate with what um, Dr. Remen wrote because when you fix something, when you're trying to fix something, you do see it as broken. Uh, at least I do, and and when when you when I offer to help from that place i do see someone or something that is weak and i don't think that that's necessarily wrong when you zoom out to a uh, hundred thousand feet of course life is whole but we we do have the excitement and the complexity of living in this material plane where people get boo-boos you know people get broken legs people um suffer and Sometimes helping because someone is weak or fixing because something is broken is, is exactly what's called for. And that can be in service, for sure. Um, it can also be, like I, as I described earlier, not so 
benignly in service. It can be something that we do for for our ego. But I, I think it's okay to to look at these things, you know, in a in a dualistic way, and see certain things as broken, see certain things as weak, that um, compel us through compassion to be of assistance, to be of service in fixing or helping. So it works. So it both works both ways for me. I think. I found that um, reading the article and the post, um, it did not resonate positively with me. I also must admit that for myself personally, I find the word service to be a problem. I do not disagree whatsoever with any of the sentiment that has been expressed around service and what it means and and how it can be uh, expressed. But the word itself bugs the crap out of me. Uh, Why? Why? Because service for me is servitude. There is this overwhelming sense of losing oneself. And I do not like that at all. Intellectually, I completely understand the sentiment and the um, what's been expressed around the word that we are using it and as, and as we are using it right now. But the word itself, totally, to- I, I want nothing to do with it. I don't want to be in service to anyone. But that's only because I don't like the word. I, I have no objection whatsoever to being present, to being available, to being compassionate, to being open. But the word service is just, I, I want no part of it. So if you went to volunteer at a food bank, you're not really fixing something. You could say that you're helping to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times we see things like doing that, like volunteering in those kind of capacities as being in service. And And do you see that as people losing themselves or is there another term that you would feel more comfortable with or do you think that that just falls under helping? I like helping. I like being present. Yeah, there's something about service that just just totally trips all of my all of my wires and it's I just can't get my I just can't get behind it. The word Jeff, what about, this is how I understand where you're coming from, because being in service is not my natural speak, and it's not the natural way I think. Mm-hmm. And how I, where I put it is, or I take, take it and translate it into, am I in alignment with my highest purpose? So is this not my highest purpose to help or aid or fix or assist or whatever? You, wouldn't, you just would not hear me talking about being in service because it's not my, my natural state. Right, and I, and I think that's, it, in essence, what I'm trying to, to articulate. Uh, does it, 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 maybe it feels like um, that leaves you vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Um, possibly, because uh, I have thought, I tried to think about it a little bit, and there's, I, I think a lot of it is... Um, it's not so much that I'm concerned about being vulnerable and being taken advantage of. It's the, the assumption that unless one comes from a place of complete 
egolessness and anonymity and that there's no value there, that the individual no longer has a place in what is being offered. And I don't find that to be true. I, I, I have no problem whatsoever with acknowledging what it takes for a person to put themselves out there, to do what they do, to offer. I don't think they have to be on some other spiritual plane in order for it to be uh, of value. And so the whole concept of, of service and, and being above ego, I don't believe that it's necessary, I think, is where it's coming from. And I don't find that I have an, an issue with an individual maintaining who they are on, on the physical plane and, and still being what they offer of ultimate value. So in a way, being in alignment is, is very close to, you know, as Mildred was expressing it, it's, it's yes, um, for me, it, being present is also a very close descriptor to how it feels internally for me. It's just the word service. And it's, it, I guess it just smacks of um, sanctum, you know, and... and Sanctimonious it, people do that. Yes. And it, it's, <laughs> it's, too, it's too loaded a word for me. So, so if you were to say, I'm going to be present and offer my help. To me, that's what you're describing it. When you have talked about service versus helping and fixing, to me, that's what you're saying. Mm. Wow. Obviously, this is a very provocative and contentious <laughs> topic of discussion. So I would encourage people listening, if they would like to see the original post of information that this, was grew, that this grew out of, um, just do a quick Google search. The blog post was called Only Service Heals, and it's by Rachel Naomi Remen, R-E-M-E-N. And let us know what you think about these terms, uh, what they mean to you, and if you feel there should be either some different terms or some different ways of thinking about or looking at what they are about. So my thanks to my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald, John Carousella and Deb Carousella for being willing to honestly engage in discussing this. And I will encourage you to stay tuned. Coming up a little bit later in the show, my revolutionary guest this month is Dr. Beverly Kane, who offers somatic learning and therapeutic practices with horses. And I think that You'll find that very interesting, and I think you'll see how it very much ties into what we're talking about here in terms of how horses can be in service to help us in our process of fixing things that maybe we need to be dealing with in ourselves. Uh, and of course, if you're interested in getting a reading during the show, you can Skype in or you can call 646-716-5510 in order to get in the queue, and we will be offering those a little bit later in the show as well. So thanks for listening, and stay tuned. We'll be right back.
listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. Hello, lovelies. This is Tino Kalenda, your queer astrologer, with yet another monthly astrology update. So this month, we are calling it Chain Reactions. So, we'll begin with a quote from Richard Garwin, who is a physicist and was responsible for building the second generation of nuclear bombs in 1952. And he said that the boundary between a physics experiment and a nuclear explosion is critical mass. Now, trust, trust me, my lovelies, that will make a lot more sense by the time I'm done with this. So let's begin, shall we? Well, oh, sweet Lucifer, this month is going to feel like a rub of sandpaper against the proverbial butt skin if one does not prepare to embrace unrelenting change, high-energy catalysts, and the need to move on a hairpin turn. Don't be surprised if the month feels more like high-energy physics than it does April and the start of spring because this one is very atomic, veritably thermonuclear. Imagine, if you will, a zipper-type centrifuge, a necessary technology that enriches uranium into fuel-grade uranium-238. It separates out the heavier atoms from the lighter, more volatile atoms, the ones that are fissionable, and can produce an explosion capable of vaporizing everything it touches. This is an apt metaphor for how this month will shape up astrologically speaking. The same process, albeit in different form, known as fusion, is the same process that creates stars and hence powers worlds in the galaxies of the universe. It is the power that fuels our sun and all life on Earth, and it is here that its regenerative potential lies. This allegory is illustrative, not literal, to represent the power of the moment we collectively find ourselves in. This transformation is not a spectator sport, and as such, you have a role to play in it. What's interesting is that Pluto, which plays a pivotal role in this cross, is said to be correlated to nuclear power as it was discovered concurrently with the first smashing of an atom in 1930. It's an apt metaphor of the polar powers of of the planet, which represents the destruction followed by total renewal. I will cover the major aspects being made this month, but will warn that their importance is largely eclipsed by these massive patterns forming in the cardinal cross. 
This is much like you're refining uranium and going through each step in the process before we reach the moment of fission. And then boom, it is what this aspect has the potential of feeling like. We start our season of the vernal equinox with the entry of the sun into the cardinal sign of the ram Aries. Here's a sign that is completely unapologetic and comes on with all the intensity of a sunburn. This one is feisty. We begin with priming the pump with an Aries new moon on April 1st, 2014. The only way to honestly begin the month is the word explosive. We are in the season of ceaseless creativity and an almost impulsive exuberance of life. This spring does not request or announce its coming. It simply arrives with its, fi- with its fiery primary brush strokes. This marks the energy we will be dealing with primarily over the next three months, ushered in by the new moon. On-ramp acceleration, Uranus, square Pluto, April 12th. Pluto and Capricorn will be squaring Uranus and Aries, giving a spark of intensity to the self-world axis. Historically, when these squares have occurred, massive upheavals have been observed in history from which collectively things have changed drastically. It could be the useful flushing out of pedophilic priests from the church, despotic leaders making aggressive forays into the typical political land grab, witness Putin and the crisis in the Crimea, or some other trouble just lurking on the horizon. Climate change, water crisis, food security issues, political uprising, all are possible and certainly on the table. The linchpin point will be to recognize a radical break or departure from the past and the forging of new territory. In any case, the recipe is for encounters with tyranny and the need to act to transform it into justice. Sexual revolution most likely taking on the form of reproductive access issues for women in the developing world, the continuing abortion debate in the industrialized world, and the questions raised whenever dominance and resistance are colliding. Civil disobedience, a sense of reconstituting utopia from the grassroots, and thunderstruck towers collapsing. The moral of the story is that when these two energize this axis, there's a massive impetus to act and make radical changes. These two impulses create the selective pressure that acts to catalyze actions which will irreversibly change social structures and institutions at a collective level. From the extreme possibility of the first stages of the empowerment of world governance, to the possibility of total economic overhaul that finally eases the global inequalities we see all around us. I would dare say we may see the beginning of the end for dictatorial regimes, the power of various elites, whether financial, religious, social, or technical, and the beginning of the fall of massive institutions that have been responsible for oppression in our world. The caveat is that this will only happen if we choose it collectively, and then take action. Earth's penumbra, the lunar eclipse of April 15th. Eclipses always represent important moments of transition, of cycles emphasizing completion. The moon will be passing in front of the constellation Libra, 
Issues relating to others and our relationships that allow us to live in civil ways will come to the fore. As this one is lunar, it won't be felt in a conscious way, but will be felt at the level of feeling and intuition. The impulse will be to defer to others. Be sure that if you are taking a more diplomatic approach that you don't run roughshod over yourself in the process. This is an excellent time to tie up any loose ends as it relates to others in your life. Perhaps it's time to bury the hatchet with a long-standing enemy or clean out your contacts list of friends you no longer have much dialogue with. Which naturally brings us to the critical mass, our cardinal T-square occurring on April 18th. T-squares are some of the more intense aspects in astrology for the reason that they demand unwaveringly an impetus to act. This one will prove to be especially energized given all the characters who have starring roles in it. I call this one critical mass to illustrate my zipper type of centrifuge. As the chemical reaction moves towards critical mass, it becomes increasingly unstable and requires containment at that point. If it continues to ferment in time, it will lead to a cataclysmic explosion. Many factors are coming into play in this day that are making it highly charged like cosmic ray particles. In that Uranus and Pluto are squaring one another and Pluto and Jupiter are forming an opposition to one another. How a T-square works is that the planet at the base or leg of the T-square is being energized by the planets forming an opposition to one another. In this case, it spells out that a need to act in ways that break with convention and are future-oriented is being given precedence by the need to transform and regenerate social structures and the further magnified by an awareness of our inherent interconnectivity and the need to protect the life support systems to support our civilization and the health of our species and biosphere. Issues related to our home planet. The question of critical importance is where do you need to make a radical departure with the past and act in novel ways which help to meet bigger challenges in your life and potentially what your individual role is in changing consensus reality. Now is the time to start thinking and acting because as we approach this configuration, the rumblings will become eruptions, which naturally leads to ground zero, the cardinal cross of April 23rd. Our universe was born of the legacy of creative cataclysm. Our greatest cultural changes are no different. They always occur at a point of fracture, a moment when old social structures are collapsing and new ones are being born. Revolutions have defined the evolution of our social reality for as long as we've been anatomically modern. They have been slow and fast. Slow ones have included the Stone Age cultural fluorescence, which occurred over a 30,000-year period. The agricultural revolution occurred over 10,000 years. The industrial and scientific revolutions took 400 years to reach the articulation they have, that now we are a force of nature. The fast ones are the digital and computer age, which occurred within 30 years. Not to mention the French Revolution, which incurred, occurred inside of eight. And currently, we have scientific revolutions occurring inside of months as our knowledge increases. Arab Spring occurred 
over the course of days, empowered by the technologies of the computer age revolution. At this contemporary moment, the fast and slow are converging. Expect quicksilver innovations and massive change coming to lumbering juggernaut social institutions. The only way out is through. Our collective regeneration potential begins at this discrete point in time and space. This is the flashpoint moment when all things ultimately converge to create a perfect storm of events. A rogue planet of characters has all been invited to the wild circus that will be April. So an overview of the geometry of a cardinal cross will help to clarify some of these intense changes being fueled by highly charged energies. Here's what the planets will be doing in the sky. And all of this will be happening in the initiating and enterprising cardinal signs, which means they pack a lot of firepower, and they represent origins and beginnings. The cardinal signs always signal the beginnings of new seasons, and when in historical configurations symbolize new beginnings precipitated first by a crisis of breakdown or upheaval. If these aspects were personalities in a community, this is who each of them would be. The risk taker would be Mars opposite Uranus. Mars square Jupiter is the daredevil. Mars square Pluto, the survivor. Jupiter square Uranus is the freedom fighter. Jupiter opposite Pluto, the truth teller. Uranus square Pluto, the anarchist. So what does this mean for the probabilistic and uncertain world of events when all the state vectors collapse from the potential to the actual? In other words, what happens when these six personalities come into highly energized interaction with each other? It might shake out like this. Remember back to Arab Spring? We can predict we will see more of the same and possibly with even more speed than the first one. In this case, it will erupt all over the world. The crisis in Ukraine is just the first flicker of this wildfire. The crisis involving Putin, Russia, and the world community could potentially heat up, and it's no surprise that there's gridlock among leadership and neocons in the U.S. are calling for an escalation to war. Our continuing environmental issues will accelerate with many different aspects starting to show the depth of the crisis. Food security, water access, climate change, resource depletion, and energy issues will all continue to be big issues for the foreseeable future. What this period may reveal is how critical it is that humanity get the collective grip on these issues and begin to make them central to policy decisions on the horizon. Another flashpoint is the economy. There are rumblings in some circles that the current recovery and the dizzying rise in stock prices we are seeing in the U.S. and U.K. markets are artificial inflations and don't reflect the real economy, but more just the liquidity created by quantitative easing. What's interesting to note is that when these squares occur, there is usually some economic trouble on the horizon. Expect for sure to see the usual parade, political corruption, religious fanaticism, and the scandals of its leadership exposed, economic inequality, and the like, as the increasingly flimsy foundation of our institutions will continue to wear thin. But that is the point of this series of events. 
It is demonstrating the underlying need to completely transform and regenerate every one of our social arrangements, a societal makeover. The courage to act in innovative and inventive ways that are a radical departure from the past, guided by our higher insight into our common humanity, that we are interconnected and that the entire planet is our home. Finally, to act decisively and thoughtfully to bring fairness to the world and its institutions and to address imbalances in the distribution of resources and the balance we strike with the biosphere that underpins our global civilization. We have to keep mindful of the rate at which we use resources that are critical to societal function, i.e. energy. This will show us head-on the resiliency of the human family, family and the impetus to act to pull us all out of the dark ages of our contemporary alienation. We may begin to see the first flickers of an underlying social structure that will lead to a sustainable and stable civilization that is finally founded in reality. Again, only if we choose to. This is not a spectator sport. Black on the solar eclipse of April 29th. We finish an absolutely dizzying month with a solar eclipse, an event where the moon passes in front of the sun and it will be moving through Taurus. Eclipses deal with completion and shifts in perspective. Taurus deals with material resources, desire, and the body. This eclipse will have distinctly earthy feel to it and as such expect that your perspective surrounding your value on this earth and what your contributions are to it will be on your mind during this transit. We will be concerned with the relationship we have to resources and their fair and sustainable use, which is another word for stable. Taurus is a stabilizing sign being fixed in quality. It will be Difficult to be objective during this short period as our self-worth issues will surface in a big way. That said, stick with it because it is leading to a point where resolutions to these issues will surface. Collectively, we will all be asking the fundamental questions of how we can come into balance with the resources of our planet and the dynamics of our global culture. And that's a wrap, boys and girls. Thanks for joining me once again for another monthly report of your astrology. If you'd like to consult or get a chart reading from me, please feel free to contact me at calenda.tino at gmail.com. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A dot T-I-N-O at gmail.com. Also, be sure to read this online at my blog, which is flyingpunkrockunicorn.wordpress.com.
my thanks to Tino Kalenda for once again his insight, wisdom, and guidance with his astrology update for this month. I will remind you that if you'd like to get a reading a little bit later in the show, you can get into the queue by Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. And stay tuned, because coming up next is my conversation with Dr. Beverly Kane about her somatic learning and therapeutic practice with horses. We'll be back with Dr. Beverly Kane right after this. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest. Or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Revolutionary guest this month is Dr. Beverly Kane, lead mayor of Horse Sensei Equine Assisted Learning and Therapy. Horses are creatures who worship the earth. They gather on feet of ivory. Horse Sensei Equine Assisted Learning and Therapy is an interactive interspecies psycho-spiritual growth process that draws upon the strength, sensitivity, and magic of the horse to teach basic life skills and transformative attitudes and behaviors to humans. In concert with exceptionally attuned equine partners, such as horses, ponies, and occasionally mules, clients realize states of heightened awareness, playfulness, acceptance, and joy. Revolutionary guest this month, Dr. Beverly Kane, is on the clinical faculty of the Stanford University School of Medicine. She is program director for Stanford's Medicine and Horsemanship, which teaches interpersonal skills to medical students and healthcare professionals. Dr. Kane is also the co instructor for Stanford's Medical Tai Chi course, conducting the study of the peer reviewed medical literature on the health benefits of Tai Chi. In 2003, She founded Health, or Horse Sensei Equine Assisted Learning and Therapy. Her private practice includes equine assisted learning for medical and corporate groups, equine guided psycho-spiritual counseling for individuals, and somatic horsemanship for groups and individuals. You can find out more about Dr. Kane and her work 
by visiting her website at www.horsesensei.com. That's www.horsesensei.com. So please help me welcome by giving a loud round of galloping hooves to my revolutionary guest, Dr. Beverly Kane. Welcome to the show, Beverly, and thank you very much for joining me here today. It's a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure, hi C. Now, as we heard in your introduction, um, the the primary thing that you uh, do or engage in is something called somatic horsemanship, and uh, that is Qigong with Horses for Mind, Body, Wholeness. And I think there might be some terms in there that people may be less familiar with. So maybe we can start by, one, having you give us just a little history of how you came to have your connection with horses and are working with horses. And then I think we'll go into defining a couple of these terms so people understand a little better uh, what it is that they mean and what you do with horses. Well, somatic just means of the body. And most people are probably familiar with that term in the kind of pejorative way that it's used in psychosomatic, which is a term that a lot of doctors used to use to describe people who had conditions that were all in their head. Oh, your condition is psychosomatic. But in fact, all health conditions are psychosomatic because we're made up of minds and bodies, and we don't want to have a split between them. So to call something somatic and psychosomatic is where we want to go. Um, Somatic means of the body, and horses in particular are absolute consummate role models for somatic embodiment, for being in their bodies. The way that I came to horses was fairly late in life. I had been working um, in the medical departments of some large corporations such as uh, Philips and WebMD. And when I hit 50, my body started to deteriorate in a way. I didn't have anything actually wrong with it, but having been a marathoner and running several half marathons and a mile a day swimmer, I noticed that my stamina and my flexibility and my strength were diminishing um, after that age. And I have always loved animals and the outdoors. Um, I was also a solo backpacker. And so through a series of dreams and other synchronicities, it came to me that horses had the ability to restore my body, to rejuvenate it and to renew it, and that if the horse became an extension of my body, and I'm talking about riding here, riding horses, um, although later we'll talk about relating to horses in in ways that don't involve riding. But when I started riding, I became a centaur. And the horse was, in fact, an extension of my body. And it was incredibly joyful to feel the horse's strength and speed and grace become my own. And one of the things, besides somatic, one of the things that you also 
primarily incorporate is Qigong. And I know a lot of people may be familiar with that or have an awareness of that, but how is it that you specifically came to using that in conjunction with horses, and how does that work specifically working with Qigong and horses? Well, I've done dance and other somatic arts since I was five years old. And most recently at Stanford, where I teach, I became the teaching assistant for what's called medical Tai Chi. And it's called medical Tai Chi because in order to get credit in the medical school, we need to study the peer-reviewed literature on the health benefits of Tai Chi. And also at Stanford are the Shaolin monks from the Shaolin Temple USA. And I began to do Kung Fu with them. And Kung Fu turned out to be a little too strenuous and complicated for me, especially trying to keep up with the 25-year-old Stanford guys. And I started going over to one of the other Shaolin temples to do Qigong. And that was kind of my introduction to that, although I have friends that have been doing Qigong for years. And I like Qigong because it's gentle. Anybody can do it. There's kind of a continuum of martial arts. Uh, especially the Taoist, Buddhist, Shaolin traditions, which on one end of the spectrum have Kung Fu as a more aggressive and strenuous and martial type practice. And on the other end of the spectrum is Qigong, which is extremely gentle and which has a specifically medical form, medical Qigong, which is for healing. And this is something that you do with the horses themselves, or this is something you're doing with the the patients or the clients that you're working with in conjunction with the horses? Well, both. I, I My personal practice is to go out among a, a herd. I have a couple of herds that I work with all at this 320-acre ranch in Menlo Park. Um, I am so very blessed to have... A natural herd, as natural as they get pretty much in this country or at least in populated areas. And these are horses on a 40-acre pasture at Liberty. So I'm coming into their space in the way that they live. They're not in stalls and they're not in little paddocks. Um, they, they run pretty free. And I will do my Qigong and my Tai Chi in their presence. And it's really interesting how they respond to that on different days. And we can talk about whether I think they're responding to chi or body language or smells or whatever it is about me. But I also take clients back into the herd um, or take, uh, depending on how much horse experience they've had and how long they've worked with me, I may just take a horse out and we work with the horse somatically learning from the horse how to be embodied, how to live in our bodies the way a horse does. And this isn't just like teaching people how to ride horses, because the the title, I think, of what you do is equine-assisted learning and therapy. So what you're doing is going far beyond just teaching someone how to get on a saddle and ride a horse. Uh, can you give a, a bit of a more explanation as to the type of work you're doing and why people would come to you, and specifically why working with horses is so beneficial in doing the kind of work that you're offering? Very little of what I do is mounted, and the mounted work comes later after the person has learned to relate to the horse on the ground. So horses are 
about two things. Let's let me mention a little bit about the nature of horses. There's a couple of things about horses, two main things that are different about horses from cats and dogs. So first, horses are prey animals. They are dinner for animals mostly from the in the wild, from the cat family, which is in the case of zebras, mountain lions and tigers that live in the jungle. And in the case of the feral horses, such as the wild Mustang herds in the United States, you're looking at wolves and coyotes. So they are prey animals, and all their sensitivity has developed over the last 60 million years in order to assure their survival. They've developed really exquisitely attuned senses, particularly hearing smell. Their eyesight isn't, isn't great, um, but they do have almost 350-degree vision. Um, one way you can t- tell a prey animal is their eyes are on the side of their head. Cats and dogs, on the other hand, are predators. They have, and, and so are humans. We have eyes forward so that we can prey on other animals and, and get our dinner that way. So that's one thing that's different about horses. The other thing, when you're talking about a wild herd, is that they're very comfortable in our bodies. With our domestic cats and dogs, oh no, although not for the feral cats and dogs, but with our domestic cats and dogs, we've really imposed upon them the morality and the social conventions of our body. They're only allowed to eliminate in certain places. They only really get fed when we feed them. And they're acculturated to our standards for good behavior and bad behavior, good quote-unquote behavior and bad quote-unquote behavior. With horses, particularly the ones that I'm blessed to work with out in pasture, they don't have any of that socialization particularly. Now, they're much more socialized to human beings than, say, the Mustang herds of Nevada, but by and large, they eliminate where they want. Right now, at this time of year, they're free grazing on this wonderful green grass that we're finally getting. So they're very much less inhibited by the social mores imposed by humans than cats and dogs. And it makes me, uh, hearing you say that, it makes me think of, you know, when we talk about animal totems or animal medicine, um, one of the qualities that horse is often representative of, so whether it's your life totem or just comes into your life at a particular moment, one of the, the aspects for horse is freedom of expression. And I, and I think it is kind of, that's to me what it is that you're talking about, is they really represent this idea, this ability to fully embrace living life and to just be open to allowing yourself to run free to giving, I would even say, to giving your imagination free reign so that it can go where it wants to and not feel constrained by the morality or the, the, the structures of society and what's been imposed on us or what we've imposed or limited ourselves by. Um, do you find that when you work with people that they start to exhibit that opening up and becoming more free to be themselves and more free to express themselves and to live their lives more freely? Absolutely. And that freedom starts 
somatically for a lot of people. Um, if you think about it, we have a lot of taboos associated with the body and the, the body taboos that were socialized to particularly concerning body image, sexuality, and elimination, those affect other areas of our lives and particularly, as, as you mentioned, creativity. You had also asked, I see, how people come to me. And a lot of people come to me because horses start appearing in their dreams and they have no idea why. But they listen to that message and so they decide they want to work with real live horses. And so horses as icons and as, as symbols appear in people's dreams with a message. We are, we should note, in the year of the wood horse this year, 2014 to uh, February 2015. So this is a wonderful year to get to know horses. There's also the admonition by James Hillman, who has a book called Dream Animals, in which he advises us to also let animals just be animals and not to get too much into the symbolic aspect such that we forget who they really are as animals. And, and the, what he says, for instance, is the snake is not just a penis. And, and horses are, are symbolic of freedom and strength and grace. And each horse is also an individual. So with these 10 or 12 horses that we have out in pasture, What's really nice about taking people out there is seeing how different the horses are from from one another and how they set their boundaries physically with each other. It's almost, you know, the the thing that we're always battling against in in the human species, which is stereotyping, where you you overgeneralize a group of people based on one or two particular examples. And I think people do that all the time with animals, too, that uh, you know, they say, well, dogs are like this, horses are like this. And, and and I think that part of what you were talking about and what Dan Hillman was talking about, you know, I've even seen that in, in having my dog, is I don't want to lose sight of the fact that she is a dog. That's really hard to do. <laughs> you know, right. So many people think of their, their pets as a <laughs> child versus an animal. Um, but I think that we go too far in looking at the books or hearing the people talk about like how to train your animal. And what's really, I have found a lot of times is we're training out or trying to train out the instinct or the natural aspect of the animal itself. And that ends up doing a disservice because then we get upset when they're not conforming. And I like what you're saying of the idea of not just seeing the animal as a symbol, but to see it as an individual even amidst the herd. So that there I think part of what you may be helping people to learn through working with the horses is how to operate in both ways in the world, how to be an individual and not lose your individual individuality to the group, but then to also understand how you have to work within the group because there is an interconnectedness, so you can't let your individuality override the need or the, the, the way that we have to contribute to the group dynamic itself. Exactly. And the other thing, the other generalization about horses is that they are herd animals. 
and they have safety in numbers. That That's another reason why they've been able to survive. But if you look at a herd of horses, it's really interesting to see how close they need to be to the, the herd as a whole and how they buddy up. For instance, one of my horses is always about 50 feet from the main herd. He's kind of a loner, and he is the exception that disproves the rule about how close horses need to be herded up in order to feel safe. And I think it's also a good lesson in not, um, which I think humans also tend to do, um, in not projecting onto that. Because a lot of people would see that and then go to, well, there must be something wrong with that horse. Because if they're a loner and not acting like we perceive the stereotype or the general tendency of a horse to be, we immediately project something being wrong rather than being able to look at that horse individually. And I think that that, and you can correct me or speak to this, that may be something also that people that are working with you and the horses start to come around to is to not look at their differences or the the things that are individual to them, their eccentricities, their characteristics that might be a bit different than the group or the society or the culture that they're in, to not turn that around and look at that as that makes me have something wrong with me because I'm not like I'm supposed to be, quote unquote, versus it's okay for those differences because that simply makes me an individual and I need to see myself that way and learn to respect those qualities within myself and how they contribute to me and what I can do with them rather than how do I change them or make them conform, which I would think with animals we often do because it's like we try to force them to conform either through training or sometimes it can be a bit more harsh in the way people treat animals to try to get them to do what they want or think they should do. Um, so, So do you think that people that you work with and then working with the horses helps them to come to a better acceptance of their own individual traits and qualities and not to see those as something wrong because it doesn't conform to perhaps what society or someone else is saying they should be, but instead to be able to start to embrace their individuality and work with that in a more creative and productive way. Well, that's such a great question, and that actually gets us into another aspect of my work, which is equine-assisted psychospiritual development, which I do for everybody from, you know, Esalen Ions-type people to Silicon Valley corporations. And it's all about expanding concepts, kind of getting rid of this notion of right and wrong and a notion of self-acceptance that one's communication style and one's leadership style and one's physical style of relating what one thinks of as one's personal space. It's just a question of diversity and it's not a question of right and wrong. And the horses help to see that, help us see that because horses are very non-judgmental and yet it's so easy to project our self-judgment onto horses. So one of the nice things about working with clients who who really know nothing about horses is that everything they see in a horse really represents a projection from themselves. They'll look at a horse and say, oh, that horse looks lonely. Or they'll see my horse that likes to stand 
50 feet away from the herd and they'll make up all kinds of stories about how lonely he is and how outcast and that that's really a projection from themselves and there are other people that say you know that's me at a party i really like to stay away from the crowd and just watch and so whatever comes out whatever they start talking about and it becomes kind of stream of consciousness they can one minute later look back at themselves and laugh and say i just described myself mm-hmm. uh, it's almost as if the animal becomes the rorschach test <laughs> I have used that term in, in describing how, how horses are and how we look at them. Yeah, they're just um, one big projective exercise, and we encourage that, um, especially when we're training uh, physicians and, and, and nurses, where when if you have projection can actually interfere with the therapeutic relationship. We talk about things like projection, transference, and countertransference. Those can interfere with the therapeutic relationship if you don't recognize them. Mm-hmm. They are projection is a part of all relationships, and that's okay if you recognize it. And if you don't let the associated emotions run away with themselves, so that you can't be in relationship with your patient or your client or your spouse or your friend or whoever it is that you're trying to relate to in a way that's fair and and quasi-objective and that respects who they are and who you are both. And bringing this back to somatics, one of the key indicators of when you're projecting, when, when one is projecting, is how you feel in your body. It's the, the body sensations that come up with the projection that comes up. So so if you look at this horse that's standing outside the herd and you start to feel sad, well, you know, where is that sadness in your body? And it is oftentimes a somatic sensation that accompanies an emotion. People, when they're saying, oh, I feel sad, where do they grab? You know, when, when somebody says, oh, I feel so sad. Well, it's their heart. People will often put their hands over their heart and say, oh, I feel sad. Or for happiness, people throw up their hands and say, oh, I'm so happy. So emotions are accompanied by somatic gestures and somatic sensations. And projection is accompanied by both somatic gestures and sensations and by emotions, all fitting in together. And, and these, these, this is what horses teach us. Which, of course, makes me curious. The last time you saw a horse that was so happy, he threw his hooves up in the air and waved them around like he just didn't care. Yeah, well, this is the time of year. This is when the horses get really frisky because it's it's cool and the grass is coming back and there's no greater joy to project onto than a horse with spring fever or a whole herd of horses with spring fever. And they're trotting all around and they're rearing up and they're kicking and farting and doing all these happy things <laughs> that horses do. Um, and I wanted to mention another aspect of what's so important about horses somatically because it evolved as a survival um mechanism for them and it really teaches us about regulating emotions and and this is where we work a lot with chi so 
horses are very spooky animals. They, they're afraid of a lot of things. They can see a plastic bag and think that it's going to eat them. And so they are very quick to go into fight or flight mode. Again, as prey animals, everything's a tiger, everything's a wolf until proven otherwise. So they can get really scared and pump out a whole lot of adrenaline on a, on a dime, on a moment's notice. And they'll run and they'll jump and they'll shy away. And then as soon as they ascertain that there's no danger, they literally go back to grazing. And so we teach people to do that. Uh, one of the main somatic horsemanship classes is our class at Stanford called, um, subtitled, Stress Reduction in the Presence of Horses. And these are stressed out university people that come over to the ranch 10 miles from campus to really chill out and learn how to regulate their stress and regulate uh, their emotions. And so when you watch a horse that's in fight or flight mode and then one minute later he's chomping grass, that's a real lesson for us because humans tend to hold on to our emotions. If we get mad or sad or um, scared, we tend to stay that way for a lot more than a minute. Uh, we hold on to negative emotions a lot more than animals do, um, and especially horses, because it's just, horses want to conserve energy. They don't want to stay in a highly aroused state, because again, as prey animals, they need their energy to run if there's real danger and not just a plastic bag blowing around out there. So it confers survival advantage onto horses to be able to go back to grazing and conserve their energy. And that's one thing that we can really learn from them is to go back to grazing. I had a, a group of physician leaders, uh, a group I did in Florida, and they we did this really fun exercise. And it involved saddling a little horse who had never been saddled before, come to find out. I did not know this before the exercise. And the another equine in the the game arena, her best friend, who's actually a donkey, pulled the saddle off her, at which point she started racing around the arena and racing and racing and racing. And she was pretty freaked out because there was this saddle underneath her belly. And as soon as we took the saddle off, she was fine. She went back to grazing in one minute flat. But the people, the doctors who were in this leadership class, they, first of all, felt like a failure because they had failed to keep the saddle on somehow. And they just wouldn't let go of it. They processed it and processed it, and they stayed in failure mode for a long time until we said, you know, look at, uh, I think we named her Gladiator, this horse. Um, look at Gladiator. She's so totally over it. And that was a, a real lesson about not to hang on to negative emotions, but to just let them go and to just learn to get back into a somatic state of peace and calm and bliss. And I think that it makes me think of a couple of things as you describe that story, because I heard someone um, say that feelings 
physiologically, feelings last approximately 45 seconds. Emotions are feelings with a story attached mm-hmm. that can last a day, a month, a lifetime, because it just depends on how often we are going to repeat the story over and over again to ourselves or to other people. And you know, and from a Buddhist perspective, that of course brings up the idea of non-attachment and not having expectation so that we don't set ourselves up for disappointment by having an expectation of what happiness has to look like versus being able to accept whatever it is that comes from what we do and then being able to be happy with that. And in Buddhist meditation, of course, it is that very classic thing that you're learning is how to allow thoughts to arise. Even if you're in meditation, it's not wrong or bad or you haven't failed just because your grocery list comes to mind. It's whether you hold on to that grocery list and now it takes you out of meditation or you're able to just acknowledge the grocery list and then allow it to pass through, which would be like coming back to that place of grazing rather than to get stuck in the story around the grocery list that we can't let go of. And so it, it it's very interesting to me to see how horses become this perfect analogy for that and kind of this physical representation for us to look at of these ideas that sometimes can seem very ephemeral when we're trying to think of concepts and big lessons and everything. And, you know, so it, it, it's, it, to me, it's, it's very beautiful to see how horses can become this living example and living embodiment of that. Um, and I, I'm curious, you've, you've mentioned uh, like doctors and nurses and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering if, you, if there are um, particular types of people in, in uh, particular professions or people that are going through particular life situations that working with horses and particularly in the way that you would work with them and horses um, that would benefit most greatly or seem to have the most uh, responsiveness to that kind of work. Um, you know, when I think of, again, from like the animal totem perspective, um, I would think that it would be people who, uh, a lot of times horses are associated with sexuality. So I would think that perhaps working with them um, for people that are going through or dealing with issues around sexuality in some way. Um, I also maybe think people who have lost their passion for life or need to reconnect with who they really are or what they really want to be doing or having that joy in life, or people who are feeling very limited or stuck in their role or in their self-definition. Um, and, and working with horses can help to really, again, kind of free that for them. So do you find that there are people in particular professions or life situations that doing this kind of work with horses that you do is particularly beneficial or recommended? Well. Yes, first of all, to, to what you said before, I just have to say horses are perfect little Buddhas. And, and we can talk about more what that means maybe later. But there are many kinds of people that benefit from, from the equine work. Across the board, the reason that equine-assisted psychotherapy, equine-assisted learning, equine-assisted psychospiritual development, somatic horsemanship, therapeutic riding, hippotherapy, these are all modalities that come under the general heading of equine-assisted uh, activities and therapies. They, there are specific groups that are helped um, for those reasons, and they're often people who have not, have gotten really 
stuck in office-based psychotherapy, especially really left, so-called left-brain verbal-type people who can just kind of talk circles around whatever their issues are. And in order to break through that, that verbal stuckness, that, that cognitive overlay to what, what their issues are, they come out and deal in a nonverbal way with horses. But I can tell you some of the groups that are um, greatly benefited by these equine-assisted therapies are, uh, in no particular order, people who are really stressed out, a lot of people who suffer from trauma and abuse. If you look at all the body-oriented psychotherapies, such as dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, there's something called EMDR, um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. There are all these therapies that deal with traumatized people and people who have been abused, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, um, particularly veterans military service people who um, have been traumatized, people who have been abused as children. These are people that can relate physically to horses when they can't relate physically by humans, especially humans who have abused them physically. So all these body-oriented psychotherapies have people that add the equine component, so you have equine-assisted EMDR and equine-assisted CBT and equine-assisted DBT, uh, all these these types of psychotherapies. Children on the autism spectrum have been enormously helped by horses. There are severely autistic children who are preverbal up until the age of eight, and then they do therapeutic writing, and at eight years old, their first word is horse. So the horse has this ability to just break through the consciousness of people who have altered states of consciousness, who, who are unhappy in their conscious and cognitive and emotional states. And then again, we have people like corporate executives who have dysfunctional communication styles and they and nobody can tell them you can have all these executive coaches come in and nobody can really tell them how they need to improve their their leadership style or their communication style and then when they get with the horse they see what the horse comprehends and how the horses react so the horses become a mirror to our styles and to, to who we are and how we show up at work and and at home and in all our various relationships. Um, you know, a horse is not afraid to walk away from a CEO if the CEO isn't communicating clearly or isn't showing up as his or her authentic self. You know, I read an article recently, uh, and it was by Linda, I'm going to say her last name, Kohanov. 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 Um, and it was an excerpt from her book, The Power of the Herd. And and in reading that excerpt made me think uh, in some of the points that she brought up in terms of how horses could be looked at and how we could look at the different qualities of the different elements and then how the horse can show us or exemplify aspects of all of the elements and what we can learn from them or what they uh, have to offer us in each of those elements. And one of those being fire which, um, you know, in, in this article, the things she was talking about that she sees from horses are things like consensual leadership, 
um, the ability to know when and how to exert force or energy in the right direction at the right time, but also knowing when to step back and allow mm-hmm. someone else to do that. And so it just struck me that that would be very much what you were talking about, like with the CEOs, for example, is, you know, they come on very fiery and the horses are kind of like, yeah, we're not having any of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I'm I'm wondering if I might just go through the the elements and if you could maybe just say one or two things that you happen to see that horses have to teach us and how they exemplify the qualities that you associate with each of the elements. Sure. I, I just want to say also I love Linda Kahanoff. She is absolutely an icon in the equine-assisted psycho-spiritual development world. And um, I have to laugh because um, Linda works mostly with Arabian horses, which is also my sort of favorite breed, and they're very fiery horses. And so as we talk about the horses in relationship to the elements and with what we mentioned before about the proviso not to stereotype horses too much. We'll we'll talk a little bit about the breeds that are maybe most associated with elements. Yeah, and because and for me, I, I tend to look at everything elementally. And so if someone was thinking maybe I need to go and do some this kind of work, you know, with horses, mm-hmm. it may also be as we hear what particular breed tends to be more uh, of an example of a particular element. The way I always think about that in life is. What issue am I trying to work on? What element does that issue relate to? And then what element or do I need to stimulate that element more within myself? Do I need to calm that element down? So if I needed fire, if I needed to be more assertive or more confident or more courageous in my life in some way, then I need more fire. So I might look yeah. at what breed would be good for me to seek out to work with if I was going to want to work with horses, whereas if I was a CEO who realized I'm coming on too strong, I tend to be overly aggressive, I tend to steamroll over people, then maybe I need to work with water in order to calm <laughs> that down. a nice quarter horse, yeah. Right. And so it may be I might love Arabian horses and think I really want to go work with them because I love them, but that may not be the right breed for me at that time. To work with. So I think that you also mentioning the breed that you feel kind of corresponds to the element is going to be very beneficial because it'll also help people. And I would like to say that whether, obviously there's great benefit in working with the horses in person, but if someone doesn't have that available to them or for whatever reason can't do that, also working with the spirit, the, the, the animal totem of that particular kind of horse, of using meditation um, or other kind of techniques to connect with that kind of horse, the spirit of that kind of breed and that kind of thing, I think can also be very helpful. Yeah, so, absolutely. Drawing horses is, is really helpful. Watching old westerns that have horses in them or some of the, the horse movies where the horse is, is fairly central to the, the movie, like I, the, um, the movie Into the West is this semi-mythical story about some Irish kids and a white horse. Um, and there's a, a movie that just came out called Winter's Tale, which I haven't seen yet, but I've read the book um, six times where the, the mythical horse represents the archetype of horses. I, I just want to say I, I've never looked at the horses 
as uh, in the elemental sense. So, so this will be breaking experimental ground here. But to that point, there's uh, also a, a book and a concept called Smart Women, Foolish Choices. And it's about women that continually pick the wrong kind of men, or it can be a person that continually picks the same and wrong kind of partner for them. And so when you said about the CEO that may like Arabian horses, but that's not the right choice for them. There, there are a lot of women who come to horses, particularly women, but some men, but it, the, there's the prototypical archetypal middle-aged woman who comes to horses and then wants to work with the most dangerous out of control <laughs> horse, um, which is not, not what she needs. We right. say that she's over horsed in that <laughs> in that uh, in that case so okay well we can play with the elements all right um so we might as well just start with fire you know um and so what qualities or aspects of horses do you think exemplify how you think about the element of fire and what breed do you think might also represent that element i think of fire as representing creativity and spirituality in the uh, weight, the, the wider weight to row, it's the suit of wands, which represents energy that's used spontaneously and often for creativity, sexuality, um, just inspiration and intuition. And the breed that most represents that, that most exhibits fire energy is the Arabian horse because they're so energetic. They are just, they are your proverbial fiery steeds. These are the horses of Arabia. They're desert horses. Um, they're very fiery on one hand. They're in, in this country, they're employed in the sport of endurance. They can just go forever and ever. Uh, these are your long distance horses. And these are the horses that are most evocative of our image of the horse. They're very fine bone. They have the big eyes and the little nose. They are just quintessential fire. And how do you think working with horses, what, what would be most beneficial and what do they exhibit that would help someone coming to them to work with the element of fire? Well, somebody who's really inhibited, especially in, in their body, somebody who's afraid to take risks, afraid to just let their creativity flow with with your prototypical Arabian horse, you would be able to just appreciate a horse that can run free and, and just have a lot of energy. Uh, it's what you mentioned earlier about one of the main archetypal qualities of the horse is the freedom and the spontaneity. Spontaneity is, uh, is really key here. So uh, next, let's move to, well, let's just do the opposites. Um, let's move to water. Well, water in the tarot, for, and, I, and I realize people have different interpretations of, of what the suits may mean and what the correlates in the poker deck are, but water's cups. It's a very yin element. The cold-blooded horses, there, there are three main kinds of horses, hot-blooded, which are your Arabs and thoroughbreds, um, warm-blooded, which are your 
sort of Olympic dressage horses like the Hanoverians and the Oldenburgs and the cold-blooded horses, which are your mellow guy, you know, Monday night football kinds of horses, which are the, the quarter horses. So for water, I would pick not so much a breed, but what comes to mind is a, is a very nice mare, a very mellow, probably a quarter horse mare, but, but any horse that, that's really mellow that um, has learned to regulate her emotions. And this is the emotional regulation is what horses teach us when we learn the back to grazing principle. And so it's a horse that's not very spooky to start with. And if something disturbs her, she just kind of looks at it askance and then goes back to grazing and, and comes back into a state of, there's a pun here, equanimity, equanimity. What behaviors and how do you think working with horses would most exemplify the water element? Well, it's that emotional, the, the ability to come back to some kind of emotional equanimity, some emotional equilibrium um, that, that horses do so well, coming down from highly aroused emotional states down to almost being back asleep again. In, in order to, in addition to going back to grazing, they go back to sleep. And so we have an exercise that we do with our chi, which is to bring the chi up and down. We have a, a saying, with apologies to Hemingway, that the chi also rises. Um, one <laughs> thing that you learn when you're riding horses is to stay in your seat bones and, and keep your core really hard. And even though there's a dynamic to riding horses, the conventional wisdom is that you really keep all your weight in your seat bones. But when the Shaolin monks came out to ride the horses and to do energy sensing with the horses, the executive director of the Shaolin temple said, no, you don't keep your energy in one place. You bring the chi up and down, up and down from your dantian, which is your lower chi center, to your middle dantian, which is around your heart. So it's really about bringing your chi deliberately up and down. And then when you have runaway emotions, you can say, well, you know, where am I on a scale of one to 10? Where is that emotion? What's the height, the level of that emotion in my body? And you can start using hand gestures to bring the chi up and down. Uh, there's a hand gesture in Qigong. Uh, it's almost like a, one of the, the mudras in, in yoga of moving the energy up and down to get back to that, that state of equilibrium. So from water, let us move to the element of air. So this is a tough one because air represents, is, is swords, and it represents the intellect. And if anything, the, the intellect is sort of literally not the horse's strong suit. And that, and that's a good thing because when you were talking before about how feelings last, what, 45 seconds and emotions last. Indefinitely, uh, depending indefinitely. on the story. Right. And the reason they do is because we get our intellect mixed up with the emotions. Horses 
don't have that cognitive overlay when something happens to them. They're not about making judgments and they're not about really figuring things out. Some some horses are, are pretty smart. They can get out of their pens and they learn things really fast. Um, there again, your Arabian horses are the smartest horses going. Um, so maybe they've, they've got a good... Uh, the the Arabian horses that aren't so all fired up are actually the smart horses. How else do you see swords or or air that might relate to horses other than the intellect and problem solving and things well, like judgment and? Well, I also see swords as the suit of communication and perception and oh, attitude. And yep. so, and when I think of horses, they see, they tend to have this kind of innate ability to see and perceive beyond the body or the physical form and really connect with what is the internal, what are the emotions actually communicating from this person. They may be standing confidently, but their emotions are fear, so they're overcompensating by trying to stand too confidently. And therefore, the horse, just like you were saying with the eyes, 350-degree perception, they're able to see beyond just the overcompensating physical stance and understand what's being communicated at a subtler level and work from there. Well, in fact, horses are also masters at detecting incongruency, which is when our speech and our verbal communication don't match our feelings. So what we say and how we feel are two different things. So in that sense, they can cut through a lot of the deceptive sort energy that people put out. Um, horses are like writing a computer program in, in some ways. They, you know, you talked about them being a Rorschach test, but they're also like a program that that has a bug in it where you think you told the computer what to do, but the computer says, no, that's not how I interpret your program. Well, horses are just like that. You can think that you told them something clearly and that your intention to tell them a certain thing was very clear, but they'll let you know if it's not clear to them. So it's kind of, so, so, um, it's almost like horses are the, the living version of autocorrect. They're, they're like, Think of a tarot card that's kind of a reverse sword. So if you come at them with a communication that's not clear or double messages or uh, something that's ambiguous to them, it's kind of like... You can maybe say the Seven of Swords reversed. Because Seven of Swords is often about trying to deceive or get away with something or portray something in one way but going behind the back in another way. And then the reversal is when we see the truth of that or when we see beyond the the smoke and mirrors or we see the the, the man behind the curtain, (laughs) if you will. Yeah, that's a a great one for for listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the weight deck or, or with the tarot. The Seven of Swords shows this guy kind of sneaking around a camp um, looks like a military camp and it looks like he's stealing swords that one interpretation of that card is people stealing ideas or or you know there's some kind of deception there he definitely looks like he's sneaking around so yeah so so the the horse is going to re- be a reversed uh, seven of swords for the person that's trying to do that that that's a great image and the reason why I said it makes me think that horses are like the living embodiment of autocorrect. 
like yeah. on the phone, because yeah. you, you think you typed one thing, and yeah. then when the message sends, it shows you what it actually heard, especially if you use like Siri on an iPhone, like if you talk to the phone to, to yeah. do your message, you get to see what it actually heard you say. Yeah. Versus what you thought you said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so horses are our living embodiment of autocorrect. That's a great <laughs> analogy. Um, and then moving from air, we go to earth. Yes, you save the best for last because earth, of course, is the physical body. And this is where horses absolutely excel in their teaching by how they use their bodies their physical bodies, how they use their chi, uh, if we can even tell the difference. You know, parenthetically, we don't know whether a horse is sensing chi or some very subtle form of body language. Um, horses certainly have extrasensory perception, and there's some interesting studies in that regard. And so horses lie on a continuum between what's physical and what's metaphysical. Horses are so comfortable in their bodies. And we talked earlier about how, particularly in Western societies, there's certain body images that get propagated um, for, for both men and women and all kinds of body myths. And you don't have a horse walking around saying, does this saddle make me look fat? They are just very comfortable with with who they are. They have no shame. They have no taboos. Geldings will mount geldings out in the pasture. And it's it's just a lesson for us in being comfortable with every aspect of our bodies. I, I think that especially in 21st century Western society, people are very alienated from their bodies the amount of plastic surgery that's available for people who think that their lives are going to get a whole lot better by having some of it done. Uh, and, and maybe they do, it does on a certain level, but I think that for people who are struggling with body image, including weight, including aging, um, including disability, to be in the presence of a horse that is so comfortable uh, in his or her body is is also very liberating, and it's a model for us to love our bodies again and to be comfortable in them and to be grateful for the health and the form that we have. And do you feel that all horses represent this? Do you feel like there's any particular breed or type of horse that in, that really stands out in this regard? Well, I think a pastured quarter horse is probably the poster horse for earth energy um, because they are cold-blooded and they are so mellow. And I'm thinking of, you know, not so much a breed, but here the, the difference becomes the difference between horses in stalls and horses in pasture and horses that are show horses and horses that are just, kind of out there in pasture and they're not expected to perform a certain way or look a certain way or have their hair all braided up in bows and and smelling like all these smelly chemicals we put on horses and that's you know I don't I don't think that's bad for horses I I don't think that they mind that I think that some horses 
obviously come into the world to have that kind of relationship to people and to be in the Olympics and to be in rodeos and to be in other kinds of horse shows. But I think that in terms of our learning from horses that are allowed to be in their natural state, it's going to be your pastured um, quarter horse or some other really mellow kind of horse that's just allowed to be that's going to be our best teacher of earth energy. So I know you thought that I saved the best for last with earth, but to me there's one more element, and that's the element of spirit. Okay. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts on, you know, when you think of the spirit element, a lot of times in the tarot that may be seen as the major arcana, um, and how uh, horses exemplify and display and, and mirror back for us the element of spirit and what it has to offer us and how to cultivate it within ourselves. So there are two major arcana horse cards in the Rider weight deck. One is death and one is the sun. And they kind of represent opposite ends of the spectrum, although in a sense they're the same card because they're all about sort of letting go of ego, letting go of attachment, and coming into the world in a very um, empty kind of way, in a Buddhist, Taoist kind of emptiness. The Tao the is the emptiness. Virtually all horses have some kind of psychic ability. Like humans, some of them are way more psychic than others. And so animal communicators have a more or less easy time, easier or, or more difficult time communicating with them. Um, but they certainly have a lot of extrasensory perception. And, and again, this conferred survival advantage on them over the last 60 million years. So in terms of the spirit nature of horse, it's, it, spirit is all the elements rolled into one as a way that one gets closer to the divine. And when you look at a horse in a pasture that has the freedom and has all the other four elements manifested in a very healthy way, that is spirit. That That is the spiritual wholeness. That's the mandala that we strive for. I would encourage people listening that as you've heard Beverly describing the elemental associations and qualities with the horses, if you have felt you wanted to pursue investigating or working with horses in this way, think about these descriptions that she's given. And if you feel as if you are really strong or really display a lot of the characteristics in a particular element, then that may not be the type of horse or the type of issues that would be best for you to go in and work with in relationship to the horses. If you felt you were struggling with, challenged by, lacking some aspects of a particular element, that may point you more towards the kind of work to think about doing with horses. So was I correct in understanding that having people actually mounting and riding the horses is basically part of the very last step or the last part of the process when you're working with them? Yes. Uh, after we've done a lot of groundwork and we've learned to do some energy work with horses and some just 
physically satisfying work like grooming and leading, the the sort of culminating pièce de résistance is uh, we do qigong on the horses. I use a very classic Chinese set called the baduanjian, which translates loosely as the eight pieces of brocade. And it's a medical qigong form that's done for health. Each of the eight forms is associated with a certain organ system and, and healing that organ system or the a system like the um, the uh, the immune system, which isn't really an anatomical system or it can be the spleen or the stomach. So we've done that on the ground for some number of weeks. And then the last day, we do it on the horse and we ride to Native American flute music. So it's a meditation. So you have one person on the horse and you have one person leading the horse. So the person on the horse doesn't have to steer or do anything but stay in his or her body and just be totally aware of the chi and the breath and the muscles. And it's a marvelous meditation. And it's a a very transcendental uh, experience even for people who aren't in the habit of having transcendental experiences uh, who aren't necessarily spiritual to start with, but it, it's a very moving experience. And so I'm just curious, and I'm thinking of this, obviously we hear what the, the literal way of doing that is, uh, but even if someone was thinking of this from a symbolic way and working with the energy of horse, even if they're not physically working with horses, how... Or, or what is the indication that someone has reached the point where they're now ready to get on the horse and start riding, that they've done the appropriate groundwork, that they have gone through the necessary process and are ready to make that transition from, for me, it's going from earth to spirit or to sky because you're, you're rising up, you're ready to transcend the level you're at and move up to the next level by mounting the horse and moving up to the next level. So even if somebody is working symbolically with horse, what do you use to try to identify that people are ready to make that transition and have laid that groundwork properly? Well, it's not up to me. It's up to the person. If you're working with a a literal horse, Horses are still big, scary animals, and a lot of people come to classes and to private sessions being afraid of horses. They'll say, I'm really afraid of horses, but I had a dream about a horse, so I know I'm supposed to be here. So we don't push people. Um, the, the last class in the Stanford course uh, is optional because we only have four sessions, four, four class sessions, and so nobody has to ride. So it's really when they feel ready and and they know because the rest of the class is learning to listen to their bodies about what their bodies need. And when they're ready to take that step, it's like taking the training wheels off your bike. It's different for every kid, but every kid and, and to some extent the parent knows when the kid is ready. The funny side of it is as you were talking, I was saying, well, if you don't really have a horse, take a quarter and put it in the machine <laughs> at the um, at the mall and ride one of the mechanical horses. But it, it's really when the person is ready and listening to a body that says, boy, I would be a much healthier, happier body if I were on a horse. Uh, so you mentioned both groups and private sessions. Could you just 
give us a little information on the, the, the kind of services that you offer and how people can find you or uh, get in touch with you to explore doing that? Well, my website is horsesensei.com, and actually, if you just Google my name, uh, Beverly Kane, uh, especially Beverly Kane MD, it it's kind of the first thing that comes up on the first page of Google. The Stanford class starts at the end of April, and anybody can can join it. We have a limit of 12 people for safety and for immersion purposes. And that's going to meet the last Monday of April and the first three Mondays of May uh, from four o'clock in the afternoon to uh, 5.30. What you offer, it's not exclusive to just, you know, Stanford or the San Francisco Bay Area. These kinds of uh, opportunities are available nationwide, worldwide. So if somebody doesn't live in the San Francisco Bay Area, they can still uh, oftentimes find uh, opportunities and availability for doing this kind of work. Is that correct? Or are you Absolutely. exclusive to the world? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm actually writing a book on somatic horsemanship now. And my hope is that just about anybody can have this opportunity. And my theory is that just about anybody lives within 20 miles of a horse. And it can be a backyard horse. It doesn't have to be a, a professional horse. But there are horses virtually everywhere, even even in urban areas. And, you know, this probably isn't true for everybody, but I, I think the the statistics on the number of horses in the world now, I think there are something like 200 million horses in the world. There, there are a lot of horses. And most people live pretty close to a horse. In fact, I didn't realize the extent to which there are the Silicon Valley is just brimming with horses. And I think that when the person is ready, the horse, the horse will appear. We say when, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, in this case, the teacher is the horse and the horse will appear. To, to finish each conversation... I always ask a question, and then you will be asking a question. The, the question I'm going to ask comes from a previous guest, and they didn't know who would be the recipient of their question. And then you will ask a question for my next guest without knowing who that's going to be. Okay. So the question that was posed for you was, if you woke up tomorrow with the ability to fly, <laughs> what or where would be your first destination? I, I would definitely fly to some place where there are horses where you couldn't drive cars. So I would try to find the most feral herd of horses probably in this country, but actually... I would probably fly to Mongolia because Mongolia actually has the last wild horse. We don't have wild horses in this country. They're called wild, but they're actually feral because they, they're horses that basically got away from the Spanish conquistadores in the 16th uh, century. But in Mongolia is the last wild breed of horse left in the world, the Shevlowski horse. And so I would fly there. 
and of course you wanting to go there makes you it, to me it's it's as if you're the Jane Goodall of horses <laughs> you know because you just want to go and live amongst the horses in their natural habitat without the rest of the world bothering you um so what question would you like to pose for my next guest I would like to ask them to uh, I would ask can you describe a time when an animal touched your life and made it better? Excellent question. Well, that's going to bring our conversation to a close. So I want to say a thousand gratitudes to you for having joined me here on the show and been willing to share your wisdom and experience and bringing, really kind of bringing horses alive and, and adding so many more dimensions for us to consider and to look at when we see a horse rather than just, you know, the Anheuser-Busch horse from the commercials <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so thank you very much for that. Thank you so much, Hi Steve. This was a pleasure. And you've been listening to my conversation with Beverly Kane, MD, and you can find out more about her and the work she offers at her website, horsesensei.com which is H-O-R-S-E-N-S-E-I dot com. And stay tuned because coming up next we have our monthly Living Well segment. Following that, if you'd like to get into the queue to receive a reading, we'll have our live readings on the air. Uh, you can get into the queue by Skyping in from the show page or you can call 646-716-5510. So, Thank you for listening to our conversation with Beverly Kane. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. I had a vision of eagles and horses High on a ridge in a race with the wind Going higher and higher, faster and faster On eagles and horses, I'm flying again Flying again I'm Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Food is alive. It is a being. It is a sacred being. Food is not just our vital need. It is the web of life. Vandana Shiva. Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace. To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. 
I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. I would like to deepen the comment by Vandana Shiva, for in my experience, I have found that food is the essence of life, the life force made physical. Each time we eat, we are taking that physical manifestation of spirit and nourishing our being with what we are, the essence of life. Indeed, it is not about proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. If we could all start to remember the sacred truth of life, the mystery of it all, and be in the awe of it, food would return to its rightful place, and so many of the ills that rock our people would cease to be. Honoring the sacred truth of all of life changes our relationship with food, the earth, ourselves, and each other. The soil is but our very soul. How we treat the earth is how we treat ourselves. And our food is a great representation of that as well. Poisoning the earth poisons our very being. Seeing life from the heart heals our very being, and that is the whole world. Healing the lies of separation within and without allows the new story to emerge, one where earth and people are cared for, and the abundance is shared with all. Willie Nelson says, Our food system belongs in the hands of many family farmers, not under the control of a few corporations. The dominant institution of our age is no longer religion, government, or academia. It is the global business corporation. This global crisis is also the defining spiritual crisis of the human species. We are being challenged to grow up, and as we wake to our fundamental relationship with the cosmos and ourselves, there will be a new re-engagement with life. How do we awaken our hearts and let it feel the truth of the pain, the truth of the earth crying out through us, to actually see what is going on and start to take action that moves us and our consensual reality into a new story? How do we start to talk of things that seem as taboo or too negative? When will we realize that the conversation must begin to take form and shape as we share our feelings of despair? and realize that those feelings are actually our caring, our deep caring for our world. When will we realize that each person we look into is but ourselves, including, but not the least, the homeless person on the street corner or the abandoned, beaten child? How is it possible that there is even a homeless person or such a child in the first place? Where is the tribe? When will we gather together again in our truth of the tribe? Charles Eisenstein says that the hatred and seeming evil and resulting pain we see and therefore feel within the world and ourselves is the wound from the story of separation that we have taken as truth. Covered over by business as usual and all the toys of distraction, we are lost in the created wasteland of our fabricated world. As Mark Lakeman said, we are hardwired for the village. And in that, we learn to stand together for all that is right in the world, for those things our hearts know are true, and the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Jeff Lawton says that all the ills of the world are healed within the garden, for the soil is but our very soul and body. The world is but our thoughts and our perceptions, which via the programmed world have been altered. When we begin to stand in truth in our new story and share it and talk of it and feel it, 
we can change the obedience to the lies and create a new world. For it is only by our consent and obedience to the lies that this world continues as it is. There is so much amazing potential out there, and the earth and its people cry out daily. When Thich Nhat was asked what we need to do to save the world, he responded, What we most, what we most need to do need is hear within us hear within the sounds us of the earth, the crying. earth crying. And from Joanna Macy, the isolation, the isolation that splits us from the living body of our world is an illusion. The pain breaks through it to tell us who we really are. It's time to see this and feel this and not be afraid of what it will show us. Will we awaken to the call? Will we remember the great mystery that is our truth and the awe therein? Will we look within and heal our own wound of separation that shows itself daily? Will we see that judgments are only self-judgments and part of the story of separation that take our hearts offline? For without the heart is how all this world has come to be so. Will we see that the gathering of the tribe and the love that welcomes, embraces, and accepts all into its arms is the only way that life will return to balance? For in that we take back responsibility from the lives that are only here to destroy, and then the light again can return to its rightful place within and without, and the eyes shine again with the light of the living truth through us once again. When we realize that we are the micro and the macro, we connect with our truth and free ourselves from the narrow identities we take to be real, take to be ourselves, and we are liberated from sorrow and separation and free from fear and fragmentation. For we are at war with society and ourself. To move into to our true sense of self is what threatens to overwhelm us. Yet together it is possible, as we open to each and everything but ourselves, we engender compassion, compassion and, brotherhood. and brotherhood. We must remember that the divine oneness is within and without and surrounds us at all times. Imagination is the living power and prime agent of all human perception, and it is a repetition, is a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal of the act eternal of creation of the infinite I am. That's by Samuel Taylor Coolidge. And also from Joanna Macy. What we see here is how our personal well-being, our community well-being, and planetary well-being are all linked to the way we view ourselves. The extreme individualism of our culture is harmful at all three levels. To promote the recovery of our world and the healing of ourselves and our communities, while also living lives that are rich and satisfying, we need to embody a larger story of who and what we truly are. Family, community, the village concept, working together are the ways forward. Localization is the approach that changes a lot of the ills within the world. Communities are gathering together and supporting each other more as we see the world out there as not helping. We are opening our hearts more and more. Something beautiful is coming back around. Communities are taking down fences of separation and growing food in common so that food is free becomes a reality for all. Foodscaping is a new word that needs to be explored as neighborhoods come back online and community becomes an ever-increasing important word and part of our lives. True health comes True from health looking within and being able to see ourselves and make the necessary changes. 
It's hard work to be sure, and one must be diligent and vigilant and watch the mind. The change does happen. As we heal ourselves, we heal heal the world, and soon all the world will be healed. And remember, everything begins and ends within our own mind, and nothing is as it appears to be. Applying the tools in our chat today will help heal the mind so that we can find our way out into the truth and live free. Freedom and liberation. liberation. Now that's health and well-being. And just to illustrate some of the positive things happening out there, there was a woman uh, in a town in the Midwest, and she saw a homeless person without a coat, and he was trying to get a coat, and he didn't have any money, and there was no way that he could get a coat. And so I think she gave him a coat. But she was so moved by that that she went, and opened a store for the homeless where somehow they can get free clothing either through grants or something like that. So people really are opening to each other and seeing that heartfelt, loving connections and action heal ourselves down the world. So some tips for for us. It's spring. Life is coming back around within and without. Liver cleansing is still appropriate. Eating greens and adding more raw food and raw juices because it's life. It's raw. It's bursting forth and we want to put that essence, that alive, rich essence of life into us via this beautiful food and sprouts. So getting out and walking, enjoying nature are wonderful ways to bring this energy forward within us. Get out in the sun, let it fill your body, bring the light in through your eyes to fill all the parts of your body. Sunshine is one of the gifts of life. So is water, so drink lots of water now as we're sloughing off some of the accumulated toxins and things of the winter water, fresh juice, raw foods, invigorating. Invigorating. Some books for us to consider. Joanna Macy, M-A-C-Y, Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. It's a really excellent book. She's a Buddhist, a deep ecology person. Beautiful book. Charles Eisenstein, E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. The more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. A really beautiful book about helping us to create a new story and, and how it really rests with us. It really rests with us. John Kalos. PhD, Wild Edible Plants, Wild Foods from Dirt to the Plate. Sepp Holzer's, that's S-E-P-P-H-O-L-D-E-R-S. He's an awesome permaculture guy, and his book is called Permaculture, A Practical Guide to Small-Scale Integrative Farming and Gardening. Really fun and wonderful book. And uh, then there's the film. I recommend getting it and sharing it and 
It's amazing. It's a very well done film. It's called The Economics of Happiness. It's not necessarily happy, but it does have a beautiful uh, note at the end. It, it shows what globalization has done to most of the world and how to go about healing it with localization. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to talking with you next time. Remember, it's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining us. Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers, brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Caracella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lisney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. Mm-hmm.